Hello and welcome to the Glass Trap Banter Podcast. This is episode number 40, would you believe? My name's Gareth Bemister, your host and your guide through the wonderful world of grass track racing. And joining me this week, first up, it's Ben Ilsley. How you doing, Ben? Yeah, evening. Another another week's passed. Another Flying week's by. flown by, hasn't it? Yeah, and joining us also is Mitch Godden. How you doing, Mitch? Yeah, hi, Gareth. Hi, guys. And third up, joining us for episode number 40, it's Luke Russell. How you doing, Luke? Hello, Gareth. Hello, everyone. Talking of 40, Luke, you've edged ever so closer to 40 this week. Is it this week or last week with your birthday? It was quite recently, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, week before last. Yeah, not, not I'm not as old as you, so <laughs> I mean, we won't bring Mitch into it. <laughs> it's uh, There's a bit of a spectrum here, isn't there? But I think you're down the bottom of the spectrum, actually, somewhere, somehow, some way. <laughs> now this week we are sort of doing part three of our season review so far we've looked at the best tracks or we've talked about the tracks not just the best ones the tracks of the 2021 season uh and then part two we looked at our riders of the year for various classes uh, and part three we actually missed out uh, a couple of classes that we're going to just pick up on uh as well as having a bit more of a conversation about sort of some memorable moments of the season i've got a couple of my own that i'm probably uh going to share with you uh, but first of all, I'm going to start with the left-hand sidecars. Now, riders of the year in the left-hand sidecars, I have to say, uh, I've got a few in mind that I'd like to talk about, but I'm wondering what everyone else has got to say. When we talk about left-hand sidecars in 2021, does anyone sort of come to mind? Well, I mean, I don't mind. Uh, I, I, I can't really remember the names, but I was quite, I think I've said this before on a podcast, but I was quite uh, impressed uh, I think it was at one of the GTSA meetings, and I, I, I saw quite a lot of the uh, the left-handers going down to scrutineering and, and coming past us, sort of lining up for their races. And it's quite they've got uh, they're sort of a new breed, isn't there? Yeah. You know, there's, there's quite a few youngsters involved. Um, you know, they've probably come from relatives in the in the class, um, but you know, there's there's yeah. Whereas it was sort of a an aging class um you know there's there's definitely some 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 younger younger blood involved and and you, you know they they get or they all get quite excited um <laughs> and it, you know it's, it's it's a breath of fresh air yeah i mean there's uh jay sullivan is one of the ones that sort of and a, a lot of his friends seem to have started to race i think jay sullivan and there's uh dale uh dale fish and i'm sure luke can help me with this having had their regs at Frittenden. There's a few riders that, around that sort of, I can't remember any of their names So Luke. Yeah, they've all, all gone out of my head. Yeah, there's a few of them that have all, all sort of hang around together and go racing and a couple of times they swap over who's driving and who's passenger in. Yeah, because Corey Taylor um, is one, isn't there? He's driven. That's and, he's part of them, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a few of um, them. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good bunch when you, even when you see them in the pits, they're usually camping on the, on the Saturday and you can have a sort of good chat with them as well so yeah you know, it's good to have some some younger faces coming into into the sport yeah yeah there's quite a few joe holland is another one that's uh that's around obviously yeah. that's a name that's been involved in left hand racing for a long time so yeah it's good seeing this resurgence but uh you know for me the riders of the year uh or certainly the performance of the year before we get to the british champion himself but uh danny hill uh, Danny and Harry Hill were absolutely flying at the uh, sort of back end of the season. They've only ridden about four meetings, but very quick, uh, almost immediately, really. I know that Danny rode on the back a few times. Yeah, they they um, the first time I really took notice of them was at Lebury, yeah. and uh, they had a great day. 
And I took even more notice than when I nearly ploughed through the fence yeah. and ran us over <laughs> uh, right in front of me. But yeah, put that aside, they had a great day and really um, got to grips with the with the class quickly, haven't they? Yeah, they did. They really did. I mean, the racing at the, the Ledbury meeting was incredible with the left-handers. Um, Rob Heath and Kyle Fish, uh, I wonder how they're feeling about the uh, the British Championships because obviously they... They made, the, like they always do, really, they made the gate in the final, they got away, and then uh, I think they threw a chain, didn't they, going into the first corner or something? Something like that. Yeah, they did, yeah. And that was the end, that was their race run, but they, you know, everywhere they've been, they've been one of the front runners this year. I mean, they're my, they're my ride, they're my team, they're my left-hand team of the season. Mm. Um, I mean, it's great to see, you know, Rob's tried various different, he, he's been, he's done quads at Tetro, He's tried a bit of 500 sidecar racing. I think he did a bit of cycle. Did he do a bit of sidecar speedway as well? Yeah. Um, but he's he's you know with Carl in the chair and you know and the team they've got around them, they've really found their feet in the left-handers and they've gone from strength to strength. I mean, they're the ones to beat at every meeting, um, and just purely based on that fact, makes them for me the uh, the rider of the year mm. in the left-hand class. So um, obviously Alex Bauman. Alex Bauman. Isn't Steve North's lad had a go? Uh, have I tried? No, no, no not, not yet. Pass, I think it's something in the future. Yeah, I think in the future, one or two more seasons, and then I think uh, yeah. the Suns are going to go on the front. They, uh, there's a lot of them there that could all beat each other at any point. I mean, that final, obviously, Will Penfold led the final uh, and then got the puncture. Um, in the last lap, um, Josh Penfold is another one that seems to be going really well. Another Penfold is Tommy Penfold, who always goes really well with that cross-plane. Um, but obviously the British champion was Alex Bauman, who won his first British championship um, in one of the most dramatic finals I think I've ever seen. And Alex, I get on really well with Alex. He's a good lad. Uh, nice to see him win the championship. And um, yeah, you can't really... To, to win that title is obviously the big one in the left-hand side cars, but um, yeah, he's sort of... I mean, I I spoke to him on the day, I think we were walking up uh, after all the finals, I was walking up to the uh, to the presentation with Alex, and um, I think he was, he was more shocked, you know, <laughs> pleased, relieved, couldn't quite believe what had happened, um, but, you know, he put himself in that position, and, you know, when things went wrong for others, he was there to tidy up, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah definitely very shrewd of him but he's uh yeah you he's a good he's been a good servant to the class for many years uh, alex and his dad erwin um so yeah another name on the trophy and obviously a year that he's going to remember from that so yeah i think that um overall though i think i'd have to say rob heath and kyle fish as well personally because i think that they are just i like the way they go about the business as well they always do just enough don't they um so I yeah think they're, they're they're a real happy bunch as well you know they're always there on a saturday night um you know and it's always smiled i mean there was a few tears and 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 uh obviously when when they threw the chain at lebury but um you you can't you know that that's just life isn't it and and you can't you know they're excused for being upset about that as anyone else would be Mm -hmm. but um yeah they're a great great bunch all all of them you know that the 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 wives the girlfriends the the team themselves they're they're just yeah real real joy to be around yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And uh, the other class we didn't mention last time is the GT140s. Uh, we didn't do it on purpose, I promise you. Um, 
But I mean, there's so many riders in that class. It's difficult to pinpoint one for the rider of the year. Um, I mean, Paul Smith topped the gradings list. Um, so, and, and Paul Smith's obviously a very good rider, but then there's so many others as well that, that need mentioning. Yeah, and obviously it's, there's, there's an Essex contingent and, uh, you know, it was, it was sad to see Kevin get hurt, mm. uh, Kevin Bundock get hurt quite early on in the season. Uh, and it, you know, he's one that's packed up, which is a, a real shame, but, um, you know, Ron and Trev are, are, are super keen and, um, you know, do do their thing, don't they? Um, and you know, then obviously we were talking to Mark in the last podcast that you know he's got as, as good a shout to be rider of the season, having having started afresh, uh, you know, and finished the year on a podium. You know, um, mm. obviously he hasn't had the wins that some of the others have had, but you know, what an achievement for him! Yeah, I wonder who'll be the first British champion. I mean, uh, somebody that we. That sort of crept up on us, Ben, a little bit was we didn't realise just what a big deal he was, did we? It was Ian Clark? Ah, yeah, it's a good shout. Yeah, someone with a pretty, pretty his uh, good history in the sport, isn't? Hasn't he? So, um, yeah, no, uh, Ian was, was real quick. Uh, I think the only time he was beat was was by Shippy, wasn't it, at Bantasia? Yeah, and he had a bad accident, Luke, didn't he? Didn't he? Because we feared the worst for him for a while. He had a really bad accident. Yeah, he had a, had a off-up at uh, GW, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, when when six GT140s all tried taking the same bit of track and three or four of them all come off and ended up all over the place. Um, I think he had a, a wrist or arm injury, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, which we thought was, we'd heard was a lot worse. Then I think a few weeks later, he was back out on it. So Yeah, and I remember um, it was at... Uh, one of the meetings you were at, one of the Speedway meetings that you were riding in, I think, and you that's said Ian Clark's yep. here. Yep, that's it. But um, they they were quite entertaining on the Speedway, I think, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, they packed the grid with, I think it's about 16 to 20-odd riders of them all all going round on a, on a staggered grid and, you know, watching the likes of Ian and Shippy sort of try and come through the pack if they've got a, a back row start in one of their heats. Um and the racing, as as Mark said earlier, um, you know, it's quite even. You know, it, it's never sort of dangerous with the sort of speeds they're going. But because it's so even, some of the racing was was brilliant. And I think even this year, um, from what I gather at the dirt track events, is they've got a bigger grid for this year. So wow. should even be more exciting. God. <laughs> yes. I mean, to solve what Mark was saying about watching it back on video, you kind of just got to watch it back in sort of times two, times three speed. And it's absolutely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, I, have to, I have to do that with the pit bikes when I watch myself back. I put it times five. I like to play clown music as well while it's on. <laughs> <laughs> another the rider we've got to... Another, yeah, another rider we've got to mention that we haven't mentioned. Someone that I know you'll remember from... Riding 250s many years ago, Mitch, is Maxine Beck. Well, yeah, I knew her as Maxine Hill at the time. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I can't really remember racing against Maxine. I, I don't know whether I'd, I... don't know, I can't really remember. I know she... Obviously, she did junior grass track. Hmm. Uh, and then I, I don't know how much senior grass track sort of 250 riding she did before she packed up. Um, you know, obviously, she's only 21. Like, uh, like like all women, uh, um, but no, I mean she she she's done absolutely amazingly, hasn't she? And, yeah. and uh, you know, she doesn't give any quarter. 
she's she's happy to come through the pack. She's happy to lead from the start. She's happy to win races. Um, you know, and again, a bit like Mark coming back uh, after his youth days. Um, you know, what what a breath of fresh air, Maxine, and 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 to be honest, the whole Hill family to have them back in the sport has been has been fabulous as well. Mm. They, uh, Mark Scopes is another one that uh, I think was similarly used to ride youth uh, and has come back. So we've got a load. There's a whole group of these GT140s that ra- raced in the youth classes and didn't race for years and now have come back and are really quick. You know, Mark Scopes got better and better as the season went on. Uh, Mark Woods, I know, was a good rider back in the day and he's now back on the, the GT140s, having, <laughs> having provided most of them with their plastics. Um, yeah, fiberglass. All right, you know what I mean. Well, I did have a conversation <laughs> with uh, I did have a conversation with Paul Smith. Yeah, GT one forty rider Paul Smith, um, who has shown an interest in in going three wheels, um, okay. uh, which is going to get really confusing. Yeah, I was about to say that he'd have to put, borrow your passenger. <laughs> Can you imagine it'd be Paul Smith and Paul Smith. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I mean he, he, he you know uh, and and you know I I take a great great pride in the fact that you know when we when we set up the pit bikes it's launched people back into grass track and mm. and, I, and I feel really really happy that the 140 class has given some of the riders from from pit bike speedway uh, you know um, an avenue to to take up the sport um, and similarly I can't say that word again similarly. <laughs> Um, you know the 140s uh, are, are now becoming a you know a donor provider class for the 250s the 350s the 500s because people are coming back and going yeah yeah you know I miss this I want to do more or you know or, or other classes as well so mm. you know it's great it's a great standalone class but it's also a great stepping stone class. Yeah, it certainly seems to have attracted a lot of older riders who you know brought them back into the sport, which is what. Uh, what Mark Headling was talking about last time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even Mark was now talking about, Oh, maybe I'll get a two fifty and bowl mm. that in, or maybe a three fifty. So, you know, um, you know, obviously I'd hate to see the, the one forties weakened by losing numbers, but with where they are in the marketplace with cost and sim- simplicity, slim, oh, too many Budweiser's simplicity <laughs> to, to set up, you know, that, there's no clutch there's no gearbox you know externally um they're a great i think they're a great asset to the sport mm. i do and um, it could be a good feeder class for the the vintage class as well some of the older boys now coming to the end of their modern gt140 careers yeah we could see trevor in the pre-75s yeah. joining steve newsham well, all the 358 vintage can make a comeback on that. <laughs> well, no, classics. Tre- Trevor want to set up a pre-75 GT140 class, won't he? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's called Bantams. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a Bantam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's so hard to pick a one to GT140's rider of the year. I mean, for me, uh, probably just for pure excitement of watching her, it's got to be Maxine Beck. I think she's... She she always she never seems to be great off the start and always seems to be fighting through the pack and it's always great to watch so uh, yeah that's my pick I think for rider of the year uh, my my pick's going to be the Stewart family okay just just their their you know their sheer enthusiasm um, you know from the very start you know not not just 2021 but 
you know, from the very, very start, the, you know, there's not a conversation without Ron and Trev coming up, is there? No, no. <laughs> you know, or, or some screaming other stewards in the background or, <laughs> what, you know, it's just, they're just, they're a crazy bunch, but it, it wouldn't be as good with it without them. So, no. you know, the whole steward family is my pick. Definitely. I think Lynn Stanton has, one, thinking about it does, is worthy of a mention. Mm. He's always in the thick of the action. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I think really close call between Paul, Ian and Maxine for me. Be difficult to name one. Um, but yeah, equally, I'm looking forward to seeing them have their big day and, and have a crowned winner. Yeah, yeah, be, good. Uh, well, British champion, which would be really good. I wonder how many uh, trophy hunters are going to come in out of the blue. Well, they're trying to put a stop to that, aren't they? That's there's mm. there's plans in place to put a stop to that. So hopefully that won't happen. So I think next time we've got uh, we've we've now looked at all these classes, and next time uh, episode forty three, I think it will be, we'll do our final uh, review of twenty twenty one, and we'll talk about some of the memorable moments of the season. So if you've got any memorable moments. Uh, that stick out in your memory from the season just gone, uh, do get in touch with us, grassstrackbanterpodcastoutlook.com. Um, it's nice when there's just not just our ideas and the things that we've thought of, because we're bound to have forgotten a few things. So do get in touch with us and let us know. So it's now time for uh, the time that I get educated. It's our new feature, the right phalange. Now I'm scared about this one. Uh, if you joined us for episode number 30, uh, 37, you would have heard me bungling my way through trying to understand uh, various technicalities that were all to do with carburetors. And uh, this week, the boys have chosen uh, gear ratios. Now, as if I wasn't scared enough about gear ratios and what I don't understand, uh, Mitch then sent me an absolutely terrifying picture just before we came on air. Uh, of well it's an envelope with a load of numbers on basically Mitch that's what it looks like to me it's got a few mathematical equations on it some times timesing and dividing uh yeah and I looked at it and and squirmed a little bit I knew that I was in for a bit of a treat anyway so I think probably the best place to start is to tell you what I know and then you boys can fill in the gaps because I think Luke might be a bit lost here as well Luke I don't I don't want to speak for you but I don't know. What's your uh, what's your thoughts on gear ratios, Luke? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> fucking nuisance, isn't he? He's gone, I think. Uh, it's bedtime at ten o'clock for Luke, isn't it? So it, you mentioned gear ratios. You just you just got the rope out the boot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Luke. So Luke's so scared, he's got he's run off. So basically, my knowledge of gearing is this. So I know basically from riding a right-hand side car that uh, it's slightly different because we've got most most of the ones I've ridden have got a full gearbox, and we run in second and third gear basically usually. And I know there's a sprocket on the front of the bike, on the front of the engine, or on the engine rather. And I know there's one on the back wheel. And I know that if you put a bigger one on the back wheel, the bike tends to spin a little bit more. And if you put a smaller one on the back wheel, it tends to grip a bit more <laughs> and it goes a bit faster. But it's a bit more hard to turn. And that's about that's about the limit of my knowledge. <laughs> so so uh, if we go out for practice and the bike's 
you know, screaming and running out of legs at the end of the straight, then we come in and we put a smaller sprocket on the back. If we go out there and it's driving too hard or it's not picking up off the corners or it's bogging down, we go a bit bigger on the back. That's about as far as my technical know-how of gears go. So, I don't know. Where do you fill in from there, boys? Well, the, the easy way to try and understand it, Gareth, is that if you look at a think about like a mountain bike or you know or a a racing road bike pedal bike when you think of the derailleur at the back of a of a bike you've got a set of seven or eight sprockets from a little tiny one up to up to a big one haven't you and they're all very very close together well if you try to accelerate with the little one it'd be very hard from a standing start wouldn't it Mm. and similar similar i can't say that word again if you was (laughs) You need to use an alternative one. <laughs> yeah. Alternatively, yeah. <laughs> if you was going, if you were bombing down a hill, you know, and you put it on the big sprocket, your pedals would be turning around so fast, you, yeah. your, your knees would hit your chin. So that's a very, very simple way of, of understanding a big sprocket is slower on the back and a little, a little sprocket is, makes the wheel turn faster. Hmm. Um, it, I mean, it's difficult. It gets a bit more complicated when you've got a gearbox like uh, uh, for for uh, a multi-cylinder engine, either left-handed or right-handed or the old and new class. But the easiest way to, to try and explain it uh, is based on a solo because that's where the majority of the riders are. Yeah. So, for example, if you had a let's, – let's say we've got a 500cc solo bike and the front sprocket, the engine sprocket, is a 17 and the gearbox sprocket, which is behind the clutch, is a 15, okay, which is a normal a normal kind of setup. Uh, the clutch ring on a solo uh, with a, with a chain drive, so we're just we're going to keep it simple, is a 44 tooth clutch ring. And for example, on a track like Frittenden, for example, you might have a 57 rear, okay. So the way to work that ratio out is the engine times the gearbox gives you value A. Now, 17 times 15, uh, A is equal to 255. Okay, and then you take the clutch ring, which is 44, times the rear wheel, which is 57, which gives you value B, which is 2,508. And this is what uh, all these figures on this piece of paper was sort of confusing you. <laughs> you, then, you then divide B by A to give you the final drive ratio. So for a 17, 15, 44, 57 would give you an overall ratio of 9.83. Now, obviously, if you had a 58, it's going to be slightly higher ratio. A 59 is going to be higher. And 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 alternatively, going the other way, uh, 56 would be uh, you know, 9.66. A 55 would be 9.49 going down. Now, obviously, not everyone runs a 17-engine sprocket. Some people run a 16-engine sprocket. Some people run an 18-engine sprocket. There's different reasons for running engine sprockets, different sizes. Some people, uh, if you run a different uh, engine sprocket, it changes the speed at which your clutch is rotating. But the simple thing to work out is that if you was running a 16-engine sprocket, to have the same final drive ratio of 9.83 with a with a 17 is basically three different on the back wheel so whereas on a with a 17 you're on a 57 uh if you had a 16 sprocket on you'd be on a 54 on the back wheel right so to keep the final drive ratio the same 
or if that was the optimum final drive ratio for that track, mm. you, you can attack it from different different ways. Okay. But doing it different methods gives you different other things going on, like the clutch speed, like, you know, if you've got a, a, a clutch that is spinning faster, are you going to get more clutch drag? Are you going to get less clutch drag? You know, is, you're asking the clutch to work harder the faster it's spinning. Um, so there's different people have got different theories about whether they want to run big sprockets or little sprockets. You know, on Speedway, you see a lot of them running tiny sprockets, mm. you know, in the, like 40, 44, 45, 46. You know, but their final drive ratio is the same because that's governed by the size of the track. Now, with a Speedway bike, you know, they've got a problem where they've got too much power and not enough grip. So the reason why they're running small sprockets is to try and make the engine work hard with a small sprocket turning the back wheel. So they're trying to labour the engine with the sprocket um, hmm. and, and make the clutch work hard. So to effectively to kill the power to, to make the thing drive. You know, most of the time in grass track, the problem's the other way around. You know, we, we've got too much grip. But that's kind of a little bit of an insight. But to, to, to briefly go over... Is engine times gearbox gives you A, clutch times rear wheel gives you B, divide B by A gives you the final drive ratio. Okay. Okay. So there's a load of stuff that I'm going to just go back to then. <laughs> so first of all, like on a on a uh, a right-hand side car, which is a multi-cylinder engine, I know, there's only the two things that I've ever heard talked about, and that's the... Uh, the sprocket on the engine and then the sprocket on the back wheel. And there's only yeah. the two. And I know that you can change and chop things. And we've, we've done that before and it's just seat of your pants stuff. Really. You put a, you know, whatever on the front and then change the back and see how it feels. And that sort of thing. I've, you don't get into any of this ratio stuff. So on a solo engine, you've got, so I'm just, imagine I'm looking at the engine. You've got a, a sprocket on the actual engine. Yeah. And then the, there's a there's a sprocket on the gearbox as well. Well, well, the the, the sprocket on the engine is uh, connected to the clutch with the primary chain. Right. So the primary the primary chain runs from the engine to the clutch basket. Yeah. Yep. So okay. where's the gearbox number come from then? The fifteen. Right. Well, well, okay. Well, the clutch obviously the clutch is spinning with on the primary chain from the engine. Yeah. Okay. On the inside of the clutch, you've got the plates that when you pull the clutch in will slip, and when you collect the clutch out, they, they grip. Right. Well, in the centre of the clutch, is connected to the gearbox shaft, mm -hmm. okay? The gearbox shaft goes from the centre of the clutch into the gearbox. On that shaft is the gearbox sprocket. The gearbox sprocket connects with a chain to the rear wheel sprocket. Right, okay. Yep. So you don't you can't see it because it's behind the clutch, but yep. it is there. I can assure you it's there. <laughs> yep. But that that's the same whether you're running a belt. It's, it, uh, the, the equation's the same for a belt drive. Oh, okay. So, so it would be the front pulley times the gearbox mm -hmm. and then the, 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 the belt drum times the rear sprocket. Right. Um, but, the, you know, that gearbox sprocket is, is there on every bike, whether it's a counter shaft, which is no gearbox, or whether it's a gearbox or whatever, you know, even if it's a GT140, it's got an, it's got a effectively it's the engine sprocket but it's also the gearbox sprocket so okay it's, you can't see it but it's there so the number that you come out with so uh so you for an example that you gave you had a 17 uh 
engine sprocket, 15 gearbox, 44 clutch ring, and a 57 rear wheel. And that came out as a 9.83 gear ratio. Is that right? That's a final drive ratio, yeah. So what does 9.83 mean? Nothing. (laughs) Because... No, but but what what that does... um, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's much of a muchness really, because, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, to tracks, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, history and, 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 and proof of the pudding, you know, it, it all depends on how you ride the bike and how your engines are set up. I mean, I've been to tracks with, with super Dave and, and, and I'll say to Dave, what, what sprocket have you got on the back? And he'll say, well, I've got a 59 on. And and they turn around to me and go, well, what sprocket you've got on? And I said, well, I've got a 54 on. Yeah. But we're riding the same track. But the way that Dave rides, that gear suited him, and the way that I ride, that gear suited me. So it's not, you know, it's not if James Shane has got a 57 on, that doesn't mean that it's the holy bible. Everyone to do the same, yeah. No, it's not. It's exactly right. It's not the holy bible that everybody's got to run a 57. Yeah. You know, because some people will want the bike faster at the end of the straight and dive in, you know, front, you know, leg forward. Uh, other people have the, have the gearing. So the bike runs out of speed halfway down the straight and then they crack it into the corner. So it really, it, you've got to find, you know, you can't just copy what someone else is doing. You've mm. got to find what suits your style and what suits suits the way you like to ride the bike or the way that you like the bike to be, to work underneath you. Um, but but loosely, if you're revving out halfway down the straight and your the straight's not finished, then you need to take a tooth off mm. or two teeth off or three teeth off. The optimum thing is the bike reaching full speed at the end of the straight. Yeah, that that's the optimum performance. Uh, you know, you don't want the bike, you know, coming out the corner. You know, we. I mean, it's, it's easier nowadays with a rev limiter because you can tell where the revs are. You know, uh, but, you know, if the bike's coming out the corner, and it's on the rev limiter, then you've got the gearing wrong yeah. majorly. So it's about it's about optimizing um, the, the gear ratio to suit you. But but I mean, the other thing really is, you know, it's not super, super important if you're a plodder. You know, if you're a plodder and you you get half it in a straight straight and you shut the throttle, then it doesn't really matter what gear ratio you got, does it? No, I you know, suppose you want it to be. I suppose you want it to be an easier ride, don't you? Then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and generally, generally, the bigger the rear sprocket is, the, the easier the, yeah. the bike is to turn because the the you know the the big problem that the, the some of the slower guys have got is is making the bike break away hmm. uh, because you know when the bike's two wheeling it is hard to ride. When the bike's broken away in the corner, the bike becomes light and easy to ride. So generally when someone's struggling they they tend to go bigger on the back you know when when it's slippery or that or the, it's on a bigger track you tend to go slightly smaller on the back um you know but i mean my sprocket range in my workshop i've got from a 44 to a 64 so depending on where we go we can go super high or super low you know it's, it, the range is that big mm. from from a little tiny circle somewhere to a thousand meter 1200 meter sand track like Mitch said, it um, a lot of a lot of the setup is around about how you ride. Like Mirzy is a great example. Not many people will have a gear a gearing or a setup like Mirzy. Uh, for me, I just set up the bike up so it's easy to turn because I can't turn it very well. Um, so yeah, it's particularly with the two fifty. It's 
it's quite it's quite an interesting bike to set up. Um, they rev hard naturally, so you have to control them, but also you don't want it to over rev to damage the engine, but you need it to rev enough so you can keep the momentum and make it a smooth and easy ride. Hmm. That's right. I mean, I, I mean, I've been at, I've been at some of the some of the big long tracks in 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 Europe, and you know, I've had a, a forty eight on the back, which is a tiny gear, which you know, it's a really 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 fast gear, but the 48 wasn't right it was it was say it was too short and and i i didn't quite have enough speed and then i've gone to the 49 and it's it's not got enough pull out the corner or you know or it's 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 got too much speed or you know sometimes you want half a gear you want half a ratio and that's that's the really hard thing is is, is finding it when you get to that level is finding a setup that is absolutely perfect mm. and sometimes what you have to do is change the gearbox sprocket to change the rear sprocket to find that half a ratio in the numbers right um but you know we're not talking cow fields and grass you know english grass track we're talking thousand meter when you've got the same track one week it's, you know if you went back there the following year it's exactly the same if you went back the next year it's exactly the same and and on those kind of surfaces and those kind of tracks you can pinpoint your setup absolutely 100 percent. Mm. okay so uh one of the things that um on a thousand sidecar is if you go from a trials tire to a speedway tire uh, usually you drop a couple of teeth at the same time. Um, is that something that you, because I don't know how often you change tyres on a solo, really. Um, there's such a drastic difference between a trials tyre and a speedway tyre that it means that you need to change the gearing as well. But is that, um, does that not really happen in other classes? Well, it doesn't really happen on the solos because the, the only tyre you've got is a 22-inch rear tyre. Yeah. Um, however, on the, on the 500 side cars, you, you have the same issue because we can run uh, 22 rear tyres or we can run a 19 speedway. So realistically, if you've got an optimum gear ratio for a track, let's say it was that 57 and 9.83 and you drop to a speedway tyre, you've changed the uh, radius mm. of the rear tyre. So you have to change. You can't just put a 57 bang on that wheel on the 19-inch wheel and it'd be the same gear ratio as a 57 on a 22-inch wheel. So you have to work out the numbers and change the gear ratio on the nine, change the sprocket on the 19 rear wheel to equal uh, what it is on the 22 rear wheel. Mm. Okay. So it's very similar, very similar to uh, to what I know. And the other thing is that um, you can also, by putting on a smaller sprocket, it shortens the bike. Is that something that uh, that is is another factor as well? You know, so if you've gone from sometimes you go from a 60 to a 58 for example uh and the obviously you push the front wheel uh you'd go back then so you'd lengthen the bike wouldn't you um on the 500 side cars it's not it's not a factor because it's a fixed wheelbase uh, okay okay so a 500 side cars is, is not is, that's not an issue on the solo it's, it is a massive thing mm. um because and there's a big debate whether shortening the bike gives it more drive or lengthening the bike gives it more drive. And half a dozen people will say one thing and half a dozen people will say another thing. Again, it's about finding what suits you. Um, but I mean, my, my twin shock, I've run that bike really, really short. I mean, I run it so short that I've even moved the frame down the engine plates. So the, so the front tires nearly on the rocker cover. Um, and that, that bike really drives really, really hard. Um, 
so that you know when the way i ride that bike you know two wheeling it in and, and squirting it out i need it to i need it to hook up to, to be able to catch up with the with the leg trailers um mm-hmm. you know but that's that's what i've found out through experience over the years um other people you know like a bike that's loose like you know ben said he, you know sometimes he struggles to turn so you know in my experience you'd lengthen the bike to help you turn is that what you found yeah. ben it is yeah yeah, yeah. So, but you don't, you wouldn't do that necessarily on the gear ratio because because a, a solo bike has got a slot at the back of the swinging arm where the where the back wheel goes in. There's a swinging arm slot. So, you know, in in the olden days and on my twin shock, you have a thing called a snail cam, which is basically like an eccentric washer that you turn the snail cam to 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 move the back wheel back. On modern bikes, it's more I don't know what you call it, Ben. It's more of a an adjuster nut, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, the rear wheel adjuster, either a nut or a fancy thumb fancy. adjuster. Now that are out there, aren't they? A fancy spinny thing. So you can adjust, you can adjust the uh, the wheelbase of the bike, but that doesn't really coincide with the gear ratio. You don't have, you know, you can run, you know, if you ran a fifty-five and then you ran a sixty, you can run that on the same wheelbase. Hmm. Okay. Do you know who would have loved this discussion, Russell? <laughs> He loves he loves a good gear ratio. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I'm really disappointed. He's missed three episodes now. I know. I mean, having, Unbelievable. It's a long a long shift he's doing. <laughs> but I mean, if, if anyone wants to if anyone wants to talk to me about gear ratios, you know, don't don't ring me at five o'clock on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk to anyone and try and explain it. And uh, I can send him a picture of an envelope covered in numbers. Yeah, definitely. And frighten him to death. Yeah, no, I feel like it's. I've got plenty of clarity now. I'm just looking at this picture now and I feel like I understand a bit more. I can understand. I think what I was, I think I thought that the, the numbers at the end that you get, the result of the numbers, the ratio as it is, I thought that had a bit more meaning. I thought there was some, that was some sort of measurement of something. Well, it, no, it is it, indirectly. It is it's, it's the amount of times the rear wheel. It's the amount, or the amount of times the rear wheel is 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 rotating in relation to the speed of the engine. Right. So, so for example, so for example, if if you've got a, a final drive ratio of eleven, hmm. that means the engine is rotating eleven times to one rotation of the rear wheel. Right. Okay. If you if you've got a, a final drive ratio of ten then the engine's rotating 10 times in relation to one rotation of the wheel. Right. So it, it is, it does mean something, but okay. in real, in real terms, it doesn't. Yeah. Although it does, if you know what you're talking about, you'd look at that and you, if someone said to you, your gear ratio is 9.71, you would know what that meant if you knew a bit about it. Yeah, exactly yeah, I right. It. I mean, I can remember, you know, back in the early days at Collier Street, I would have been on about a 9.3 ratio whereas you know the speedway boys the joe screens and the mark lorems are turning up would be on something like 9.8 9.9 because they had the bikes absolutely revving their nuts off and singing around there mm. you know but i can't ride i couldn't ride like them so that setup didn't suit me you know yeah um but then things have changed over the years because you know the engines now rev to you know the rev limiters now that we run on the on the coils on the engines rev limit out at 13 and a half thousand and 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 people you know the engines will because basically because the engines have gone super short stroke the 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 achilles heel on the engine always used to be the big end 
whereas the big end uh, on a long stroke engine just couldn't handle the tonnage. Um, and and at high RPM, the big ends would fail, and it was a it was a problem for years and years and years. But as the engines have have, have gone bigger bigger pistons, shorter stroke, uh, the 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 big ends don't fail as much, um, and the engines can rev and rev and rev and rev. So whereas you know I might have been on nine point three at Collier Street in in the nineties. If I went to Collier Street now, I'd probably be on 10 or 10.2 because the engine is going much, much faster. Right. Okay. So, so it it's, does. It's, it's moved on, moved on since. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to keep you know, an eye on it. Yeah, and like with with the with the sidecar, a lot of the time we're we're in you know tens and elevens on the final drive ratio, whereas in the solos you're on nines and tens. You mm. know. It's, it's, it's a different, you know, you, you're carrying two people and uh, and a heavier bike, so you've got to gear the bike accordingly. Mm. You know, again, if you're a twenty stoner, uh, you wouldn't have the same ratio as you know as a six stone ring and wet rider. You yeah. know, so you've got to you, you've got to do what's right for you, and and you can to make things slightly easier. You haven't got to, you know, get have a GCC MS. You can get a gear chart from Bellums or. You know, you can sit down with a calculator and write your own, but they are available mm. to get a gear ratio chart that's got, you know, it's, it's about an A, what's bigger than an A4, an A, A3 size? Yeah. And it comes like an A3 size with all the different ratios for belt drive, chain drive, you know, 14 front sprockets, 15, 16, 17 sprockets. There's, there's loads of, you know, you've only got to concentrate on the bit that suits your setup um but you can buy the list off the shelf you know there it's only a photocopy i think mm. there's a lot going on there's a lot going on that people don't realize i think that uh you know lots of people wouldn't have a clue that all this was going on i mean loads of people do obviously um, i mean, but there's I a mean lot happening. You're, you're right and but the thing is you know when you've been doing it so long it, it just becomes second nature you yeah. know <laughs> you know we're on top of the carbs now the gear ratio as soon as you start talking about clutches and and uh and camber and wheelbases it's yeah it does sound complicated doesn't it there's a lot of elements to it i think that's the thing isn't it it's a lot of different different things that can make you go a bit quicker um but but it's not there's not one there's not one holy bible you know golden chalice setup mm. it, it, you know as ben said you know it, it's really you've got to be confident in try and learn every time you're on the bike try and learn try and think about what the bike's doing and sometimes you, you can't think about it straight away because when you've had a minute race and you've been battling with someone and covered in shit and stones and dirt and crap and stuff you know you haven't got time to think about whether it was revving too hard but when you get home or on the way home you know try and try and think back to what the bike was doing and 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 make notes and and try different things and and go from there yeah yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, it's seat of the pants development. I think it's, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you, you don't know until you're on the bike. But, uh, no, I mean I've had I've had Jordan Smith, who's you know who's just started in cycles, um, you know, messaging me over the last few weeks um, about about his gear ratios, and, and and it's very hard for me to say. Mm. It's hard for me to to tell him what gear to put on, because if he's not, you know, there's no point telling him my gear ratio no. because unless he's going to go the speed I want to go, it won't suit him, you know? So you've got to find something that's, that's, you know, you think about what the engine's doing. 
you know, at the end of the day, is it under revving? Is it over revving? If it's over revving, you need to go smaller on the back wheel. If it's under revving, if it's bogging down, you need to go bigger on the back wheel. That's the basics. Mm. Once you've got the basics uh, nailed, then you can start learning what suits you better. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's been an education. We'll have to have a think about what we're going to do next time because uh, there's obviously a whole load of things. If anyone listening has got a a topic for the right phalange, get in touch with us, grassstrapbanterpodcastoutlet.com. Um, last time I just put it to uh, Russell, Ben and uh, and Mitch about what should we do next, and they mentioned gear ratios, uh, and that's what we've done. And we found out all about gear ratios, and I do feel like I've learnt a little bit. I feel like I've learnt a bit about carburetors as well, so uh, definitely getting something out of it right here, so hopefully other people are too. So coming up next is our final part of our brilliant interview with Paul Miller. So hopefully you enjoy that. And then on the other side of that, um, we will be, that'll be us done for the next few weeks. So hopefully uh, you're all getting very excited about the season that's coming up. Hopefully you're all getting very excited about uh, the various meetings. We've got Ledbury coming up and Bantasia too, and uh, Tallington are running and a whole load of different things as well uh, that we've not mentioned here. So, um, any last requests here? I don't even know if Luke's even around still. I think he must have nodded off. <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm still here. Oh, he's still here. Any last any last requests, Luke, before we all go? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I thought you'd gone. <laughs> no, still here. Uh, ben, uh, perhaps Mitch can enlighten us on the small spoilers in the next episode. They don't fit as well. <laughs> That'll blow your mind, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. They're not just a cosmetic accessory. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Mitch? Nothing really. Um, obviously, there's a bit going on up in uh, in Europe at the moment. There's uh, a drift on ice thing that was happening in uh, in Germany over the weekend, mm. um, which I think a guy called Ronnie Weiss won. But uh, your friend and our, our podcast friend, Jakob Buchhaver, was also racing uh, and came third. Um, it's a kind of a speedway bike with studded tyres, a bit like the old uh, Telford days. I oh, think. yeah, yeah. Um, but this uh, drift on ice is about a four or five round uh, thing, sort of main, mainly in the north of Germany. And, uh, yeah, it's getting quite good crowds. And, and uh, yeah, yeah getting... all that it was a good battle. Yeah, it's quite a tiny it's little track, spot. isn't it? But, um, yeah. but again, you know, Jakob's getting some laps in. He's, you know, last year I think he did more more practice laps and, and racing laps than anyone in Europe. So, you know, he's definitely uh, going to be fit when the, when the, when the season starts. Um, but yeah, other than that, yeah, nothing really else to say apart from, uh, you know, stay safe and uh, keep it on the green stuff. Great stuff. Well, we will see you on episode number 41 very soon. Until then though, uh, here's that Paul Miller interview. I mean, I definitely, I remember that those years. I can remember that best pairs, actually. I've got a feeling it was, I've got a feeling it was the year before that. Whopper, what, 92? Yeah, I think it oh, was. Okay. 
Um, there was a couple of really bad crashes at the track. That's what I remember. It. But I remember that was when I first saw you riding and thought, who the hell's that? Like, I've never seen oh. him before. Why is he going so Why yeah, is Norman yeah. going so well? <laughs> well, the crazy thing is we probably knew each other because we were floating around, yeah. you know, grass tracks and doing whatever. But, yeah, it was it, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was, you know, yeah. I, had, I had best part of sort of four and a half, five years behind me. And we'd, we'd actually raced... Um, uh, European um, semi-final in Hof in Germany in 1989. So I was beginning to pick up some quite valuable experience, even yeah. at that level. But it, obviously, it just come to a little bit of an abrupt end uh, to begin with, be- just because of my circumstances. Really, we just had to get ourselves on the property ladder, and and that was that. And yeah. it was just um, there wasn't room to do both, unfortunately, financially. So um, yeah, so I guess. It's funny because you kind of get this um, confidence from nowhere, mm. and um, it's it was it was almost um, so. I don't think I suddenly become a brilliant rider overnight. Um, what actually happened was I suddenly was competing with the likes of Brian Palmer, and you know I think Brian was British champion in 1993, wasn't he? So mm. um, it was a little bit like, well, hang on a minute he's British champion, I'm competing against him. And even if I wasn't beating him, I was still there or thereabouts. Yeah. So you suddenly get uh, confidence in yourself. And, and I think probably with any sports person, if you speak to them about psychology and things like that, then I think it's, uh, it is about confidence. And if once yeah. you've got the confidence in yourself and the belief in yourself, then, um, you know, you can sort of go on to do what, you know, ultimately most people want to do and that's to win. And that's exactly what happened. I just suddenly overnight become really um, confident in what I was doing, my ability. I'm quite a dogged, determined person. So I probably was not the best rider out there and the same applied to BMX. But I kind of, um, it's kind of brute force and determination really if i if i want it then i i kind of make sure that i get it <laughs> and it don't always matter how i how i get there but i do but it was definitely an inner confidence that um mm. that brought that success around i'm pretty sure of it so yeah i think it's massive i think confidence is worth yeah at yeah, least everything. you know it's everything yeah. it is absolutely everything well, and getting out the start first so that, that was, too yeah yeah <laughs> so that was something we um again you just pick up on the way and um i spent a lot of time i mentioned earlier with my friend um uh, pete reader as we know him and uh he traveled all around europe and we traveled around europe with him and you know loads of people we used to double up uh on, with trying to save money on fuel and bits and pieces when we're racing abroad and it was something I think Scoey had said to Pete was, um, whatever happens, you've just got to come out the first corner first. That's it. End of. Mm. And I think that just stuck with me. And uh, I'd, I'd be so focused on the starts and everything else. I've, even now I watch um, Bob, Bob puts videos up, doesn't he, up on the yeah. page. And I watch it. And if you look, we, we very, very rarely miss a start. And um, that was really everything. And, the, you know, again, that come from BMX. If, you know, if you're in eighth place in BMX, you ain't going to win the race, basically. Yeah, not, so, in, not um, in such a quick, not a, such a quick race when it's so quick <laughs> like that. No, exactly. No. So, I mean, and, and the hard work's done and, um, you know, you, you're also keeping yourself out of trouble. So mm. we had very few accidents, especially I did in the early days. 
um, I remember having a really nasty accident in uh, Exeter. Fortunately, I was okay, but my passenger was horribly uh, beaten up, and uh, that involved Ray Cross, funny enough. You mentioned Ray earlier. <laughs> and um, so we had a few accidents early doors, but um, s- sort of from 94 onwards, I, I think we had maybe two accidents. You know, one of them was just spinning around in the wet. But a lot of that was to do with, you know, if you get yourself out the front and out the way, then you're not getting mixed up with people. So obviously you're, you're eliminating the uh, the probabilities of having accidents. And uh, I think that was always pretty key to um, winning and making it happen and getting out first and winning the race from the start, really, was always my philosophy. Do the hard work from the beginning. Yeah, I think that uh, we see it, you know, it's, it's not changed now. You've got someone like Mark Cossa, who yeah. springs to mind, who is who is so fast when he's riding yeah. round but if he yeah. doesn't make the gate it's, it's hard work for him and I know yes. he, he spent a few years just mastering getting off the start making sure he's off the start for exactly the same reasons yeah. you're saying yeah. get out of trouble yeah and well, uh, it, you're away you, you're away and you're just eliminating you know probably three quarters of your risk of crashing and injuring yourself and everything else yeah it's a bit different getting the power on the ground as i found out later on but getting power on the ground enough on a thousand is far more difficult than getting power on the ground on a 500 so mm. it's um you know we just had we just had it right really we just knew exactly what worked where the passenger had to be what amount of throttle i needed to give it you know and everything we just mm. it just i didn't even think about it to be honest with you. we just got it right and we stuck with it and uh it used to be good but not not 100 percent, but probably 95 percent of the time yeah we were we were out and gone basically so and you changed passenger a few times as well you just say there about that oh, but, you no. know you had you had bob yeah. reed on lester goodwin was on for a, yeah for a bit yeah lester was brilliant yeah um, it's um Woodhams as well God, yeah, I've had loads. If I'm honest, don't <laughs> quite know how that comes about. Um, I'm sure it's not me. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I wouldn't say I'm demanding either, but um, <laughs> I think it was just a progression, really. Um, we I started off with my brother on the back. That didn't sort of work out. He he got fed up and uh, didn't really want to commit. And um, yeah, uh, well, I think we had norman's influence so we had bob reed on the back we had russ hill on the back after bob gave up and um and then it was just a really a pro- it was more of a progression thing so uh right. lester come on board he was brilliant and um and then he started racing so then dave collin who was the next rider mm. uh not long given up riding was perfect passenger for me he was like eight stone ring and wet yeah and um so dave come on board and then really after and then dave gave up and then um and that's when lee come on so lee was quite um was brand new to it had never passengered at all mm. so we fully intended to sort of um train lee up and uh and that was going to be our long-term passenger and then um most circumstances changed and uh we barely did a season really right. with lee on the back so it was um it was it just didn't didn't pan out long term not because of lee but because um i had actually started a business up to enable me to race abroad more i think in 1997 i did 16 uh, race meetings abroad yeah so that was germany france holland and uh it was you know wasn't i wasn't really employable (laughs) so i was was rocking up on a monday morning having traveled all through the night not really (laughs) in any state to work and uh although um 
uh, it was my choice actually when I left it, it it was getting to the point where it was just beyond you know I, I certainly wouldn't want to employ anyone doing it no. so um it's uh that was that really I started the business up really to enable me to race more abroad and the idea was that I'd um sell sand and gravel out of a little tipper on a Tuesday Wednesday Thursday do uh travel on a Friday <laughs> race Saturdays and Sundays if we could get the contracts uh come home clean the bike on a Monday and unpack and then go to work and then uh, that lasted all of about two months and wow. <laughs> suddenly the business become really busy and yeah. uh, out of nowhere and I just my whole outlook on not outlook on racing I mean I still wanted to race him but I think I've come back from Germany um was it wasn't my favorite track by any stretch of the imagination it was far too long straights and i didn't like to hear my engine screaming at me <laughs> and uh two two tight corners uh was ludenhausen yeah and uh, i just come back from there and i thought do you know what i actually remember thinking i can't crash because i've got to go back to work yeah and I think that's because I'd always wanted my own business. I'd never really had the opportunity to do it. And then all of a sudden, my whole mindset of um, like it was win at no cost. Uh, every, you know, I had to win previously. It didn't matter at what cost. If I if I crashed winning, then so be it. But all of a sudden, that whole philosophy changed, and um, I went from that mindset of not caring how I won to uh, thinking well, I've got a bit of work on Tuesday and uh and it it wasn't noticeable but it it definitely took the edge off of my racing and i just mm. wasn't prepared to do that i think it just that you know it, it, i just knew that if i continued racing with that mindset that it it wouldn't be the way forward and i think you end up making mistakes when you start thinking like that where you can't relax and ride do you know ride naturally so yeah, that was it that's, that's, that's basically how it, that's how it ended really and i i didn't even um didn't even defend the British Championships on my favourite track. I just literally didn't have yeah, time. I went yeah. from having this opportunity to work for myself, which I'd always wanted, to and I was just flat out working. So I did actually do the Whopper that year uh, oh, in '98, yeah. and um, with another passenger, Gary. Um, Gary Lane. Gary Lane, yeah. And, uh, and I think it's the only we, time he ever rode a 500. <laughs> probably. Well, he <laughs> retired as a Whopper champion then. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we didn't race uh, from May onwards. And then um, suddenly, um, yeah, I still had the bike in the garage, 500 quid first prize, end of the season. So it's not quite so busy with uh, the aggregate industry at that time yeah. of the year. And, um, yeah. By hook or by crook, I was definitely rusty. There's no two ways about it. I remember uh, having a few moments, and uh, but yeah, we still won and um, retained the title again. I think we won the Whopper in '94, '95, '96, '97, '98. Five best part of five years on the trot, I think. Unless there wasn't one in between there somewhere, and, but but we didn't lose it 21. So yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I, I love the Whopper. Having grown up with the Whopper, that was that was as important to me as winning the British Championships, really. I just always had to win the Whopper. You know, a lot yeah. of people would come and wa- along and watch me that, you know, maybe it'd be the only meeting they would watch all year. Mm. I mean, the Whopper tracks literally um, 
two miles from where I lived all right. my life. So, um, so literally everyone that knew me went yeah. to school with me, uh, lived in the village, you know, uh, would always like make a point of going to the Whopper to um, not just see me, obviously, but that would be uh, their opportunity to see me who they knew and uh, other local riders as well. So, yeah. so yeah, that was important to me. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah, you've really nicely sort of summarised what was essentially probably three years, three years yeah. in a meeting of, of dominance of the class, really. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, European meetings, you, you mentioned you did a lot of European meetings as well. But, uh, yeah. you know, over here, you were certainly virtually unbeatable. Yeah. Um, it, 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 yeah, it felt like that. I mean, the, the competition in Europe at the time was it was I think was probably its strongest ever. Mm. I mean, I don't quite know, obviously, before I raced. And I, there is the old adage that you can only beat who's in front of you. Yeah. And that, you know, that will apply to today and yesterday and whenever. But yeah. we, you know, we had some really, really tough competitors in the fire and cycles in those days. I mean, I will reel, reel them off because yeah. it is a bit of a who's who. <laughs> so you had Onderka and Kuna obviously vying for number one year in, year out. And uh, the unbelievable engineering feat of their machinery and and everything else mm. and um if i'm truthful you know with myself i i kind of knew that consistently i would never beat riders like that they just had too much in the bag mm. too much knowledge of their own tracks and uh i always kind of excelled um at tracks like Melsungen, which was effectively a British grass track in a in a foreign country. Yeah. So if I turned up at Herxheim, you know, I'm not going to really start uh, beating Joseph von Durker and Tommy Kuhnert mm. because they, you know, they their setups are unbelievable. They, they'd have a different engine for the different tracks. They'd have, you know, carburetor setups that I'd never even heard of. And you know, whereas we really ran three engines, two of which were kind of our best engines and uh the most we used to do was maybe change a little bit of jetting if we really felt we needed to if it was too hot or too cold or whatever but you know they mm. on Durkarad Anton Nischler is his race engineer yeah. so it was like uh, I can't remember what Formula One team he came from but it was um mm. it was just an absolute different level um you had Oswald Bischoff who was pretty much consistently third in Germany at the time. Mm. Carl Kyle, mm. uh, Jacques Leduc from France, who was unbelievable. Marco Glory, yeah. Roel Lindbergh, um, the Sambre brothers, you know, it just went on and on. It was, you know, you'd look at your heats in some of the meetings abroad and you'd be thinking, oh my God, here we <laughs> go. And, um, but we actually did really well. I think in 97, I think we had like seven, maybe even eight, eight podiums in Europe. Wow. And, um, I actually, um, I'm not sure there's too many people that could say this, but I literally, um, made like a 20,000 pound profit on racing in 1997 because i know it's unbelievable so we were getting really good start money um all in deutschmarks and and uh franks and all that sort of money then so we were getting we were sharing a lot of traveling with other uh, riders solo riders generally speaking because they'd be the ones that'd have the big vans with the room for a sidecar on it yeah and and we'd quite often do two um two meetings in a weekend so Mm. my wife juliana was um uh fluent or still is actually fluent in german and french so she would be dealing with my contracts 
and uh, with uh, I had, uh, two managers in in um, in Europe that would would find my contracts. Wow. And then, um, so yeah, we were getting good start money, good ferry money, quite often getting two lots of ferry money for one weekend because, of course, you wouldn't tell one that he was racing in the <laughs> other one. And, uh, and yeah, just, and I was really fortunate in that we had some really good sponsorship. So we had a couple of people uh, that was um, supplying our engines. Um, we had um, Chris Hall, uh, from Mini Hall, as it was at the time, supposed with a van and all the fuel. And uh, we'd literally get to Dover and fill up with fuel, you know, on his fuel card and, you know, and uh, leathers, helmets, goggles, spark plugs, everything. Literally, we were sponsored wow. really, really well. I mean, yeah. we worked hard at it. We used to... Um, we used to present ourselves properly. And again, that was all stuff that we picked up from, you know, people like on Durka, you know, if you look at pictures of them, even now, they just look immaculate. Mm. And, um, but that was all helped, um, by Alan. Well, of course, I don't know if, um, mm. Alan want everyone's cup of tea, bless him. And, um, but I really always got on really, really well with Alan and, uh, I spent quite a lot of time with him. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, I used to be able to pop into his place and back in the days when he'd be hanging photos off uh, in a red room, as I remember yeah. it. And, um, but Alan helped me a lot with um, how to market ourselves and sponsorship. And he used to produce a lot of the material for us and um, mm. portfolios and things like that. I used to sit down with him and of course he had all the photos and he'd put together um, portfolios for me that I could then send off to, uh, companies uh, for sponsorship and everything else so yeah so that that one year we um we did really really well out of it and that was just a combination of being well sponsored um getting good start money and good point negotiating good point money and uh and actually getting on quite a lot of rostrums so we were we were you know picking up some really good prize money and then then we was winning at home as well so you know if you win the whopper it's 500 quid if you on the British Championships, it was 500 quid. It soon adds up, especially yeah. when you're not having to spend out much yeah, as well. Yeah, if everything's so. bought for you, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. So it was, um, it was a one-off, I think, for definite, and it probably cost me five times that to get there. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, but on that particular year, it was, uh, it was, it was all quite quite good, yeah. So. Yeah, amazing. And that uh, that European Championship uh, yes. was in Melsungen. Uh, yeah, all, all so, the riders you've mentioned were in the final. I mean, that just I was just looking at the final is unreal. I know. I know. Yeah, Do you know what the, the annoying thing about that is? <laughs> I probably made the worst start of my life. Everything I told you <laughs> earlier about making starts. Now, either I made the worst start of my life, or they all made really, really good starts. But <laughs> I think um, it just—I wouldn't say I'm one for the moment to catch up on me, but I think. It suddenly dawned. I mean, we went into the. It was irrelevant because it was a winner-takes-all final. But yeah. we went into the final as a third-highest point scorer, and that in itself was just unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, we'd had a really, really good day, and uh, felt confident on the bike and everything else. Everything was going great. But the bottom line is, we were last at the start. So when it mattered, we didn't actually quite do it. And this is where the likes of Onderka and Kuna are just, you know, they're a different level because they will make the starts when they need to. Yeah. And uh, it was almost like we were just sat there, to be honest with you. As oh. I watched them all go, my heart sank. Grim. And yeah. uh, we managed to um, overcome Carl Keel. And um, we certainly give um, um, 
Marco Gloria run for his money because I really, really wanted fourth and uh, we just couldn't get by him. I think I literally chased him down for four laps and was, and to, but just couldn't get past him. I mean, he, again, unbelievably quick guys. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I come away from there really disappointed, if I'm honest. That's and, a shame. Um, yeah. So, well, the, the only shame about it is, and it's ifs, buts, and should ofs, was that if it was actually a point scoring championship, which it had been every single year before that we yeah. would have been we would have made the rostrum and uh yeah and that would have been the best anyone any brit had ever done at that point because i think I, it was that, yeah it was i think before that cecil was gonna, come fourth i was gonna say yeah cecil was fourth and um oh, i can't remember maybe nick radley might have had a fourth or fifth as well so yeah it was it was still amazing given the competition as well but you know that's not to take anything away from anyone else i mean i'm pretty sure you know cecil for me when uh, and I used to travel aboard with Cecil in that interim period bet- between uh, racing and not I mean he was you know different level altogether as far as the UK riders were concerned yeah and uh, he um, I think in those days dare I say it I think Cecil used to have to battle the German authorities as well I think right. they they saw Cecil as a as a threat to their German dominance, and yeah. um, they did make life difficult for him at times. So, you know, again, he he might have done other things had um, he not been battling with what I could see was quite clearly a little bit of bias towards their own riders. But mm. it was, um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was it was great, and I look back on it now and I think, do you know what? you've only got to look at the names around us to, you know, to realize how big a deal it was. Yeah. Um, but, but at the time I was pretty gutted. If I'm honest. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, you were, you know, you said you retired at the end of, well, no beginning of the next year, really, but uh, yeah, May, it, May 98. Yeah. Now you look back, do you regret that now? Or you think it's just the way, the way it was? Um, no, I think I, I sort of do. I sort of wish I'd maybe, so I'd always, um, I'm not sure emulates the right word, but you know, when, you know, when it, Cecil being my hero, if you like, I mean, it, it changed as I, as it, I think Cecil gave up thousands and, you know, you get other heroes like Steve Smith and, you know, people like that who mm. just, you know, in my eyes are probably the best ever psycho rider ever. And, um, but Cecil would won the British championships five, the 500 CC sidecar three times on the trot. And so had Nick Radley. So I was, I was, I was pretty desperate to, um, become the next person to win three on the trot, mm. uh, which we duly did, as you know. And, um, and I think in hindsight, you know, there's never any guarantees. I mean, uh, you know, I will say at the po- at the time, Leicester was absolutely flying, and he obviously won it uh, the year after. And he, so he won it in '98. Mm. So you know, it's not a given that I would have won it. Don't forget. And mm. um, but it would have been in hindsight on my favourite track, it Adams, uh, on my doorstep. Um, I, I sort of do feel that maybe I should have had a go at it. And um, and if I had, and I had have won it, of course, I would have been the first person ever to have won four on the trot. And uh, that would have been um, that would have been some feat at the time. But, you know, my circumstances at the time, you know, I obviously made that decision for a reason. And um, so it's, it, you forget about the reasons afterwards. You just look back and think, oh, 1998, I could have done that. But um, there would have been a good reason not to. And, and it was because I was so busy at work. So... And uh, and there was never any guarantee I was gonna I was gonna win it anyway. But 
it's uh, it's it's done now, and uh, and there was a worthy champion afterwards as well. So uh, it's, yeah, uh, well, I mean, Leicester then went and won six on the road. Wow. So he must yeah, have, yeah. Well, I think it was the... seven, wasn't it? It's was actually seven. He won on the trot. He won. So, one, two, was it six or seven? Uh, yeah, he won six on a, in a row, and then he won his seventh with you on the back of you. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so uh, yeah, you know, brilliant, and uh, you know that kind of makes him the best 500 psycho rider ever really mm. because um to win you know to, to to be dominant for that long really really takes some doing and yeah. uh, that can't be underestimated at all it's uh that's that really takes some doing that does no it's a class that uh, mitch on our podcast has pointed out before it's a, it's one of those classes for some reason that people seem to dominate for a few years and mitch has obviously just won his first one but he thinks yes. he's too old to win two anymore <laughs> yeah well it's always harder to win your first one i think once you've won one then it, it does become easier but that's probably the same whether you're playing dominoes world championships or mm. whether you're doing whatever it's it's um it's getting over the line i think um uh, mitch has had a few you know things where he should have won it and didn't and um and then now he has he'll probably go on and win more unless um josh can pull his finger out and I'm sure there's some other emerging riders as well. Yeah. So uh, I say that in the nicest possible way about Josh because he used to work for me. (laughs) 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 So I know him really well. So we've, we've had this conversation, you know, I I kept telling him, are you going to let Mitch keep beating you or not? And uh, (laughs) in in a, in a jokey, but a serious way, you know, but um, you know, he's, it's again, you know, Josh to win the European championships. Wow you know mm. to uh to do that and in the circumstances and the track that he did it on and everything else is oh. just you know unbelievable yeah and uh i have to, I, you know i'll admit i had a i had a tear in my i actually i don't go to that many meetings actually anymore but i did go to that meeting and i've right. got to tell you it choked choked me up proper yeah it's and, like a um, film like a movie yeah you got it yeah exactly that so um but yeah to to achieve that and then you know you've to you know it's difficult to motivate yourself after you know trying to you know to to win the european championships and the circumstances in which he won it all you know i think he's done well to hang in there but um Mm. i'm hoping he keeps riding i don't know what his plans are i've not spoke to him for a little while but hopefully he keeps riding and um he'll get his mojo back and you know i don't uh mitch running away with it too easily and uh, (laughs) make the make the uh keep the cast competitive that's for sure so yeah. um but yeah um, mitch is doing brilliantly i have to say you know he's going abroad but again he's bringing all the experience that he's got as a solo rider and uh his mechanical engineering background and all that type of thing you know it all uh, it's, it's all little pieces of the jigsaw that is going to make you competitive and he's he's got the the ability to um to be european champion really on his day i think probably so yeah yeah watch well, this space i'm sure yeah we think we think so and um yeah. he's putting the laps in out there so yeah yeah that's yeah. a lot to yeah. do with it to do with it so, yeah, so we'll um we'll move away from 500 sidecars because the rest okay. of your story is is uh is with the big chairs and uh yeah a bit yeah. of time after you'd retired from the 500s you ended up with rustling's steer very powerful steer um i'm not yes. sure what your yeah. what what you were aiming for but i don't feel like no. you persevered with it very long really well it actually happened slightly before that so it was all to do with the same thing really i was obviously i went started the business up to race abroad more often because that's really where i was you know the majority of my racing was and i knew i had to race abroad more to become better and uh to 
um, try and maybe um, start beating the Germans more consistently. And um, but that sort of backfired on me a little bit uh, in a positive way because I've still got the business to this day and mm. um, it's all going very well. So so that's all good. But um, basically. I still had the bug, uh, but I just didn't realise I was going to have the bug. Um, but I definitely didn't have time to ride abroad. So the idea was um, that I would uh, start racing again. But if I raced thousands, then I wouldn't necessarily be racing abroad, uh, which obviously you can uh, say rock up in the nicest possible way. But it's much easier to arrive at a meeting on a Sunday and get home Sunday night ready for work on a Monday. So. Yeah. The logic behind it was that I would do the thousands and um, and then it, I could still continue with the business. But again, being truthful with myself, I still had uh, that little underlying feeling of I've got to be at work Monday morning. And uh, I actually really enjoyed it. But I will I will say, um, well, first of all, I, I actually bought Tim Bennett's bike, his wasp off of him first. Right. And um, so I did a part a part season uh on um tim's wasp and it was it was a season that he'd done really well on it actually so i was quite excited about it (laughs) but i think i i again you've only got to look at photos of me i was trying to ride the thousand like you would a 500 yeah so um and it and it didn't quite work we made i think i want to say we were like second at the b final at the burt's bonanza or something like that but you know i mean it it I kind of knew if I was going to get good at it, I had to probably do a lot uh, probably five years. Right. And, um, and it's a much more competitive class in the 500s as well. So mm. I, um, I bought Russell's bike and, um, yeah, unbelievably fast. And, uh, I remember doing, um, Tunbridge on it. I can't quite, I think on, I think it was the battle of Britain. It was def- definitely want the bonfire burner. And um, there's a really good picture, actually, where I'm um, tucked in behind John Holsey and I've got uh, Richard Thomas on the outside of me. Mm. But what you can't see is the thoughts that are going down my, <laughs> going through my mind as I'm doing 100 miles an hour down the back straight, <laughs> thinking, what the flipping hell am I doing? <laughs> and uh, and literally, Tomo's breathing all over me. I could literally feel his breath on, my, on me. <laughs> and uh, Graham Ashby on the side, he was brilliant, I have to say. But even then, he, he's literally hanging on the floor and i'm still trying to hang off the the bike and um i just don't think i quite got it if that makes sense in that you've got to get the bike locked up in the corners and literally ride it on the back wheel and whereas with a 500 sidecar it's all um a bit like as you see modern day solos now it's about trying to keep your wheels in line because if your wheels are in line then you're driving forward and that isn't the case with the thousand sidecars because there's so much power there. It, you know, John Holsey was brilliant at it, wasn't he? He probably introduced it, and that's why he was so dominant mm. um, for quite a long time. Certainly with the um, uh, with the with the uh, bigger engines, I, I take people like Steve Jewison out of that equation because he, obviously, with a V twin, you are probably riding that similar to, similar to a five hundred, yeah. where the the power is going straight to the ground. But yeah. Um, just didn't quite get there and it just sort of phased away from me if I'm honest I just kind of thought do I want to be doing this for the next five years and um, because for me it's all 
about the winning people say to me do you know do you miss the racing well the truth of it is i don't um but i miss the winning if i'm honest i don't know how awful that might sound but <laughs> my motivation came from winning not not so much the enjoyment of it right and um and i just felt i didn't have five years to give the sport to make myself competitive in the in the thousand sidecars so it just got to the point where I just thought, actually, do you know what? I'm better off just calling this a day. And that's basically what I did. So, But I enjoyed it. It's good. But it was, it, if I'm being honest, it was slightly beyond me in that it was so different to the 500s in that putting the power to the ground, going around the different way, it was just a lot to transform my mindset, having done 10 would have been 10 12 years going one way round mm. and finding it you know I, I literally subconsciously knew every millimeter of my throttle on a 500 sidecar yeah whereas with a thousand you know they just rev up so quickly and my absolute lack of mechanical knowledge you know probably didn't help so um although i had a couple of guys richard stevens uh who um you know, i still go out for curries with now we still discuss and have a laugh about the good old days so they they were looking after me but i literally used to plonk my ass on the bike and try and ride it Mm. and uh and they used to deal with all the sort of mechanical and side of everything so yeah it just didn't fit if i'm being honest and that was that so um but you know my love my original love is obviously thousand sidecars and you know there's an argument that you know had i chose a thousand sidecar when i was 18 then things would have been different i'm sure but um yeah. not not it not at 30 years old anyway so yeah and that's how old you would have been so, then 30 around um no sorry i'd have been a bit older than that. so i gave up the 500 sidecars at 32 right. so uh, relatively young i guess yeah, and young. um yeah so i'd have been 34 35 um when i was doing the um when i started the thousands and that mm. sort of fits in really with when i started the business in 1998 so okay. so yeah yeah 1999 and 2000 i think i was i did the thousands for it was probably no more than two seasons anyway yeah and had, had a couple Enjoyed of good it, rides though. definitely good. had a couple of good rides and i think you probably yeah. had a lot of expectation on your shoulders i'd imagine yeah probably yeah so uh, i mean i mean if you reverse the roles you know look at uh richard Piggott. yeah and uh you know he went from thousands to 500s and he mm. you know again watching videos you can, he's fiercely competitive sid yeah and um but he, I, maybe it was maybe i mean i'm not just saying this but you know maybe i was i was dominant and um and if I hadn't have been around, then maybe Sid, had, you know, possibly could have been British champion or whatever. But it was um, you could see his riding style when you watch videos is just a little bit thousand mm. and uh, not so much 500. So it's just one of those things. It's just not um, something that comes instantly um instantly naturally i think I, do, am i right in saying mark costa might have had a go on the 500s as well yeah yeah um, he did I don't, know, I don't know how well he did but um you know I, I'm, i'd imagine he found the transition probably not as easy as he thought it would be so well i mean he went all right lad. i think yeah he is a tall, he's very tall but i think yeah, he, yeah i think he says he's had he had he only rode him for a couple of years and he had more accidents and broken bones on the 500 <laughs> than he ever had on the thousand yeah i know i know it's mad it's just so, one of those things where I mean, you know, hats off. You've got the likes of Steve Smith, Cecil Taylor, 
Um, did Dennis Teasdale win a British Championship on both? I can't remember. But they, no, there's he never quite won a few. British Championship, but he was a good rider on both. I think he was a good five hundred cycle rider. Yeah, again, they were up, they were different bikes than they were uprights, weren't they? They, they yeah. were they were on wasps and uh, they were both sponsored wasp riders. I think Dennis Teasdale and Steve Smith, weren't they? So mm. um, yeah, so it's just one of those things that you just takes time to adapt to it and i think yeah. you know i i found that and i'm sure sid found that when he switched to 500s and um you either persevere with it or you don't basically mm. so it's um and I, I at the time i didn't feel i had the the time to be able to do it so no so well, i didn't <laughs> it, it led to something good because uh, yes you then went off to the isle of Wight and watched a bit of speedway well this is how i yeah. p- perceive it so yeah. Uh, the Isle of Wight held the British Speedway Championships in 2000, I think it was. And it was for the, the first time for years where they had everyone on a speedway bike, although some of them were really old <laughs> bits, of, bits of shit yeah. that had been pulled out the shed. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the next minute, you and uh, John Bailey yeah. had announced big plans for, for Sidecar Speedway. Yeah, I, do you know what? I didn't know John um, before then. I, I sort of briefly recall a meeting uh, that happened, uh, as in a riders' meeting that happened uh, at the Isle of Wight. Um, I, I, I had the bug. I, I have. I like to organise events, um, so I think it was just one of those things. I think it was just probably coincidence where John um, and his uncle and dad. Uh, under Bailey Motorsports they were keen to do something um, and I'd obviously thought about it as well and it wasn't just me it was my uh, friends as well again Pete Reed, my brother Scott and my friends they all all chipped in and helped me as well and um, and it just seemed illogical to compete against each other so I basically met up with John I think he from memory drove down to my house we literally had a half hour meeting we were singing from the same hymn hymn sheet we'd literally both wanted the same thing and that was you know why isn't sidecar speedway 10 times better than it should be Mm. (laughs) and um you know we've we we all remember the gary moons and paul pinfolds and everything else that um forget me if forgive me if i got my dates wrong but sort of mid 80s when they came over from australia doing all that and i think um we 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 just wanted the same thing so it seemed illogical to compete against each other and then um so we sort of come up with this idea of the, the series that was um i'm going to take credit for that because that was something i've always i always wanted to do and i felt the the british grass track um uh masters maybe should be a, a series rather than um a one or two day event and um so that's really how it was born and um john came down and he had some really good um sort of skills in terms of marketing i think he was he was doing marketing for a company at the time so we just got our heads together and um and spoke to the riders and you know really really well received everyone everyone really wanted it and um and that's how it came about really so we sort of um started off literally called it the agreed on a name um, I'm not sure he was responsible for that, but we um, we come up with a Sidecar Speedway Super Cup, <coughs> and um, that was it. It kind of went from there. So it was just then a matter of, excuse me, one second. It was a matter of speaking to the um, promoters to see who would. Um, you're going to ask me now where the first four rounds are. I literally can't remember, but Isle of Wight would have been one of them. Yeah, Isle of Wight um, was the last Summer. one. 
Say again. Isle of Wight was the last one, the fourth round. Yeah. It was so two, had, um, two at Paul. Two at, oh, okay, well, that would make sense, yeah. So so Matt Ford's a friend of mine, so he obviously thought he'd, he would help me out, although he would have charged me for it. <laughs> and um, did we not get a Somerset or Coventry that year, or was that Co- the year after? Coventry was the first one. But, there you go. But you, so, had the, um, you had the qualifier at Kings Lynn before that, and several practice days before that as well. Yes, yeah. So... Um, Yes, we did the Super Cup qualifier, didn't we? Which was held in awful conditions, yeah. wasn't it? And uh, it couldn't have been any worse. For our first ever meeting, like it literally had to go go ahead on us. We'd have just gone bankrupt, and that would have been the end of it there and then. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was actually the start. Um, I built up quite a nice um, sort of business relationship with Buster Chapman, and yeah. he was really helpful in taking the sidecars forward. Obviously, he was pretty much one of the only independent um track owners at the, in the country at the time and mm. um so he um owned the owned the track and everything so he was much more flexible in what he could do whereas as much as uh, matt ford was really helpful at paul he uh leased the stadium from the greyhound association right yeah so we was always restricted in terms of dates and it couldn't clash with obviously his own speedway and and things like that so there was always there was always barriers if you like with um the uh speedway promoters in general and you know they're pretty ruthless people as everyone's probably aware and uh their their first remit is how much you're going to pay me to have it so yeah uh, we were we were overpaying uh just on the venues just to literally try and make it happen yeah and uh you know i think um from my experience at winborn mertzel club you could you know could rock up and pay the farmer four or five hundred quid and you'd have the field for best part of a week mm. and uh whereas most speedway promoters wanted two grand before you'd even um sort of even bothered they want they want any emails well it was just about emails then wasn't they mm. um but they weren't really entertaining a conversation unless you were talking two grand a night so um so it was it wasn't a cheap thing to do and it was from our perspective it was actually quite risky mm. and um but that just made us work harder at promoting it and you know sometimes we did okay and sometimes we didn't in the early days anyway so 